0: I want to ask you to join with me this morning in turning to the epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 6. We are not going to be in verses 1 through 8. We are going to be in verses... 6 through 12 so i hope that's not a disappointment to you because i know that people would love for me to dive into the first part of chapter 6 and i'll make a promise to you one day i will but not today follow along with me as i'm reading from hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 through 12. this is god's word today But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This ends the reading of God's holy word today, and I pray that He will write His truths on our hearts. Let's ask Him to do just that. Thank you so much, Father, for your word. And how we ask you now to come, Lord, and be here in our midst and strengthen your people through your word. We thank you that you have spoken that you have revealed yourself. And if you had not, we would never know you. We thank you that you've opened our eyes to see, opened our ears to hear. Lord, you have brought us back from death to life. And for that, we give you thanks. And now we ask that the Spirit would come and lead us and guide us into the truth. And may we be forever changed for your sake and for your glory. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you've ever received directions about something, you know that when a person is giving you directions, once they stop stopped talking, theoretically, that's all you need. And if you were to follow those directions, you would get wherever it was you were trying to go. The same thing with instructions about uh, building a, a fence or baking a cake, right? You get the directions, you get the instructions, you you listen, you follow, and then after you do everything they tell you, you've arrived. And you've arrived at your destination or you've got a beautiful cake or or a really nice fence. For many, when they come to learn about the doctrines of grace or Calvinism, they may spend a little bit of time kind of sifting through it, working through it, but then eventually hopefully they they come to agree. But so often they say, "I've arrived. This is what I've been looking for." And unfortunately for many, the journey just kind of stops. Well, I think we would all agree that we're all still on the journey. It doesn't stop till we get home, does it? And so unfortunately, what I've seen along the way is I've seen people who are either arrogant because they know the truth, or people who get uh, apathetic and lazy and they think, well, I've, I've got, you know, the big stuff. I might pick up a little nugget here and there, but... And now I'm just kind of on cruise. For many, uh, these doctrines become a person's identity. Now listen, we would not deny them. I just spent five weeks going through each one of them, didn't I? So, So we aren't ashamed. We don't deny. And yet that is not our identity because there's much more, isn't there? But unfortunately, there's too many people out there and you talk with them and and every conversation goes to uh, a petal from Tulip. Uh, Many churches, they read their texts and say, okay, that's got to tie into Calvinism somehow. Let me figure out how. Well, there's so much more, right? Because we have not arrived. I think the reformers would be disappointed at some people, at some churches. I mean, there was so much more to the work that they did. I think Calvin would be shocked. I think our English Baptist forebears in the 17th century would be shocked at some churches that this is all there is. Oh no, there was so much more. And there is still so much more. I think we would agree with the great English Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon who said that Calvinism is just another word for the gospel so we agree with that we have looked at how these particular doctrines the last five weeks uh, uh, pertain to the doctrine of salvation or soteriology but there's so much more that needs to be discussed isn't there I mean everything that that pertains to godliness, is in God's word. And so many times I think people are missing the boat in how these things apply to us. The application of the gospel, and you'll notice here in our text that the writer says in verse nine, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so when someone comes to understand these doctrines, or even if they haven't completely understood them, and if they don't agree, when we come to faith in Christ, we haven't arrived. We don't stop. We're really just beginning. And even having come to to, to accept and agree upon the doctrines of grace... That gives us no cause to sit back and say, I'm there. Notice what he says. If you'll look back up, I didn't read this verse, but he says up in verse 1 uh, he's he referring here to leaving the elementary doctrines of Christ to what? Go on to maturity. Go on. Keep going on. Now, I think all of you know the answer to this question. When do you get there to the point that you don't have to keep going on? You don't. Not in this life, not in this world, right? We're always going to be going on. (laughs) I call this living in light of the gospel. That is, uh, theology, and in particular what we are calling the doctrines of grace, It is applicable to us is it not it's not just stuff we know up here and therefore we're smarter than everybody else who doesn't believe in this we can't just click on the cruise and just okay no 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 there is a there's a going on a pressing on and so the question that i have for you today is now how do we live now in light of these wonderful truths that we've been looking at for the 5 weeks, last 5 weeks. Now what? Now what? Well, I want us to maybe just think about what we've talked about over the last 5 weeks and how it is applied in our lives. What does it mean to be living in light of the gospel? Well, that's going to be our focus today. And I want to focus on three main areas of response to the gospel. And those three areas are going to be worship, fellowship, and mission. Worship, fellowship, and mission. But uh, before we begin, I want to just ask this question regarding the gospel: Must we respond? Do we have to respond? Now, let me clarify this. When I say respond, I don't mean in the sense that a lot of us have maybe responded over the years to, say, an invitation at the end of a a sermon or an altar call at the end of a service. I don't necessarily write that off and discount it. Many of us have done that that very thing, right? Right. But over the years, we've talked about the the issues with that as well. But I'm not talking about that kind of response. I'm not talking about that, that time where you walked down and made a decision, okay? What I'm referring to is a response that is seen in our lives daily, weekly, always. We're always responding to God, aren't we? God speaks and we respond because unfortunately for too many uh, when we talk about the doctrines of grace we really emphasize God's sovereignty in all of this don't we we would not deny that but for some that means well, I just sit back and do nothing right and let me tell you we ain't supposed to do nothing as some folks around these parts would say all right We're going to be in the book of Hebrews today, and what I'm going to do is just use several verses throughout this epistle to, to make the case of of a, a positive response to the gospel, and uh, we'll see what the writer uh, to this uh, gospel says. We, we might refer to these things that he tells us as imperatives, imperatives. And many of you will recall that uh, time and again, I have talked about the structure of Uh, scripture and and something that we can find in every book of scripture. And that structure is the indicative imperative structure. Now, does everybody remember what that is? Think back to your English classes. I know those are words we don't use all the time, but what is an indicative? An indicative is just a statement, right? Randy is a preacher. I'm not saying that's a true statement. I'm just saying it's a statement. Because some people might say, "Uh." Anyway. Now, that's what the gospel is. This is what God has done in Christ to save sinners. The Bible is filled with these wonderful truths of the gospel. But the Bible also has imperatives. Now, in light of this truth, in light of this fact, in light of this statement, now what? We respond, right? Right. What do we do? Well, first I want to call your attention to what I'm calling the the what of the response. What what it exactly is that we do. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that the writer to the Hebrews does indeed call his his readers, and that includes us, to respond, right? If you uh, think back with me, we've talked about this before when we've looked at, at passages in Hebrews, but this uh, this, this church or, or these believers that were being written to were in danger. They were in danger of falling back into to something. That they, they were kind of struggling a little bit with the gospel, which is something that we receive by faith. We're putting our trust and faith in what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's so much easier, isn't it, if you can actually do. And Judaism gives you that opportunity. You go out and grab the animal, and you slay the animal, and you put the sacrifice on it. And you can go back and read the Old Testament, you got all these things in the law that you do, and you do, and you do. And it makes you feel a lot better about yourself, doesn't it? Look at what I've done. <laughs> and so they're in danger of, of slipping back into this old way. And I'm sure that many of them who had probably come from a Jewish background after coming to faith in Christ wondered, is this the right way? Because I used to have daily rituals, weekly rituals that I did all my life. My ancestors have done for hundreds of years and now I'm not, I'm not doing those things anymore. We're not doing these rituals anymore. Many of those things the the writer covers in this book. I, I want to make perfectly clear that what we're talking about, and I think the original audience had to understand this and many of you today have to understand this, but what we're talking about when we're talking about doing is not contributing. We're not saying do to get. That's what these first readers of this letter were thinking. Okay, well, I've got to do to get this. And what we're talking about is responding, doing because of. That's a world of difference, isn't it? Because as we've seen when we've talked about these doctrines in the last five weeks, you can do and do and do and do, but you can't ever earn. There's nothing you can do to obligate God to say, okay. And yet. Because he has done. What do we do? We respond, don't we? I want to draw your attention to a phrase that recurs often in this letter. It's just two words, but it pops up again and again. And it is the phrase, let us. This is one of those imperatives, okay? Let us. I think 14 times was my count when I looked at it. And it's a call to respond to the gospel. It's a call to live in light of the gospel. This is what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. It, it doesn't simply mean just to know, but to, to live in a way in accordance with what you know. Many people know. And listen, it's possible to know. It's possible to believe and be lost. The demons believe, Right? Head knowledge is not the end game here now. For sure, learning and studying and reading and growing in knowledge is important, and I would say even crucial, but there is a danger in knowing and then not living. Second Peter 3:18 says, "But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that grow in the grace and knowledge, not just the knowledge? The writer to the Hebrews here in 6.1 says, Let us leave the elementary. There's a, now, I'm gonna, you're going to hear this a lot this morning. You're going to hear, let us, let us, let us. And so here in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to, to maturity. Now, what does he mean by this? When he says leave, he doesn't mean forget or abandon, neglect. He, he means to move on, Right. We, we learn these basic doctrines of Christ and then we continue on and, and we, we read and we study and we grow. You can't teach the same doctrine every week, preach the same sermon every week. We've got to move on. We've got to grow. And, and as we've seen in our example for the last five weeks, we can't preach and teach just the doctrines of grace as, as wonderful as they are to us. But he says, go on to maturity, growth, completeness. And as I said, we don't ever stop, do we? Physically, we, we do stop growing. These kids are growing up so fast. And they'll reach a point, some of them, they'll, they'll hit six feet tall, these, these folks, these young guys, and they'll stop. And these girls, whatever the average height for a girl is, a little bit shorter, but they'll stop. But spiritually, we never stop, do we? There are many of these exhortations, these imperatives. For instance, in 12.1, this is one I know you're probably familiar with. The writer says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, brothers and sisters, we're in a race. And it's an endurance race. It's not a sprint, Right? It's a marathon. You've probably heard people talk uh, that way before about the Christian life. And what's sad is that so many think that it is a sprint. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've seen people flame out, burn out, one minute on fire for the Lord and just doing so much and wanting to be uh, so involved and and they're running, but they haven't set a good pace they burn out. On the other hand, sometimes I see people who are barely running or not running at all. They've gotten lazy. You notice here in our text how, how the writer deals with that. So that you may not be sluggish, he says in verse 12. Why is he giving these encouragements? Because with, that's, that's what we're prone to do, right? I mean, nobody really likes to work. I mean you exert energy and you get tired and you you just don't want to do it and do it and do it and do it but this is what we are are doing as Christians that we're we're striving. He says in in chapter 4 verse 1, here's another let us. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so what we see Uh, Throughout this letter are these encouragements, these exhortations to, to continue, to press on, to cling to, to strive, to keep running. We're pressing on. And so, I think there is no doubt left, or there should not be in any of our minds, about the need to respond to the gospel. Amen? There is a need to respond to continue to grow, to to mature, to be careful. This book is filled with warnings, and so on and so forth. So in, in light of seeing the response that is necessary, I want to now go back to these three areas that we mentioned and point out to you where this response can be seen. Now, I'm not saying that there are only three, okay? There could be lots of ways, but I think these are three of the most important areas for the believer and for us as a church to respond to the gospel, to live in light of the gospel. And I want to begin with the response of worship. Now, the writer to the Hebrews talks a good bit about worship, and most of his discussion about it comes at the end. I'm putting it first. I don't think by talking about it at the end, he's relegating it to lesser importance than other things. And I don't think there would be any doubt in our minds about the importance of worship, would we? He says, for instance, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, uh, whether you're picking up on it or not, what the writer here is referring to is the worship practices under the Old Covenant. That all of that language in those verses uh, pertain to different rituals that the people did under the Old Covenant coming into the holy place, a, a way open through the curtain, the veil, uh, by Jesus the great high priest, and, and then the sprinkling and the washing. All of this is worship language. And so the context here is clearly worship. We see references here to the, to the tabernacle and, and the priesthood. And as we know, that this is where the people gathered, right? This is where they came to worship. And notice there that there's another let us. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. What I want us to see with regard to worship is that worship must be sincere. It must be sincere. I think we often come and gather here on the Lord's Day at our worship gatherings and not always But some of us are here, (laughs) but we're not here. Let me illustrate what I mean. If you're married, you've had a conversation. If you've been married for any length of time, you've had a conversation with your spouse, and I'm going to pick on the husbands here because that's safer for me, okay? But you've had a conversation and you're talking or your wife is talking to you And you're sitting right across from the table, maybe even looking at her, and she says, are you listening? Are you here? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why? She can tell that there's something at work that you're thinking about or or whatever. It's possible to be here without being here, isn't it? And I know... Uh, Listen, I've sat through a lot more sermons than I've preached. And it's not always easy to sit there and and stay completely focused. And I'm not just talking about listening to the sermon. I'm talking about our involvement in all of worship. What are we supposed to give? Well, what has God done for us? I mean, how could we not give Him anything but our best? in light of what God has done for us. We come and sometimes we we just give half-hearted worship to a God that, well, did he half-heartedly save us? No, indeed. He has, as this writer will say later, we've been saved to the uttermost, as the King James says. And so when we come together, we must come with sincerity, with, with all our hearts, true hearts, focused and awake and prepared. Do you ever, let me ask you, do you think about that? Do you prepare for worship? You know when the ancient Hebrews prepared for worship? About halfway through the day before the Sabbath, Called it the day of preparation. Halfway through, then they started shutting things down and started getting ready. So we must give our all. There must be sincerity. And then I also want to point out to you the importance of unity. When we come together, we we come to worship God, but our our gatherings are so important to the body. I've noticed recently in light of uh, some of the restrictions that people have had to go through how some have suddenly realized, you know what? I can worship by myself at home. I don't even have to gather with anybody else. Now let me make something very clear. There are some who are not able to be here because of, of pre-existing conditions and we would not want anybody to, to put themselves in danger. And I'm not referring to those people. I'm talking about well-abled Healthy people who can come, but who get up sometimes and say, ah, You know, if my heart's not in it, I really shouldn't go anyway, right? Wrong. <laughs> you should go and you should change your heart. Why? But because worship is not just about you. Now, now to be sure, we can have personal devotion times and worship times, and we should. Every day. But worship in Scripture, the, the, the corporate gathering is always emphasized more. Listen from, from Hebrews chapter 10, this time verses 24-25. And I want you to listen. We're, we're in the context of, of a worship gathering. And let us, there's another one, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How important is that? You can't do that if you're at home by yourself, can you? I mean, I guess you could call (laughs) or text. But when we gather together here in person, all of us, it's, it's real, isn't it? And when I come and gather and see you, I don't think, oh, look, we've got X number of people. I feel better. No, I see you. I see your faces. And that's an encouragement to me. Because I know we've joined together to worship. You're here to worship. That's, that's good. It's an encouragement. So we respond to the gospel in corporate worship for the sake of the unity of the body. And then finally, let me point out the importance of praise in worship. That may sound like a redundant thing to say, but God deserves our praise. That is our our thanksgiving. And I want to particularly call your attention to singing. Listen to Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, that is the Lord Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. There's another, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so what does he mean by that? Well, I think that he's particularly drawing attention to the aspect of how we praise God, how we sing our praises to God. One one writer Puts it this way. The fruit of lips is an Old Testament expression for speech to God and came to be associated with thank offerings and related songs. We don't have to wonder whether or not uh, the ancient Hebrews sang, do we? I mean, they have a songbook, an inspired songbook. And so when we come together, we, we sing, don't we? But have you rightly considered why you sing? Well, we know that we sing to God, don't we? Worship is this vertical expression, right? Our our praises go up. But listen to this verse from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Notice how that verse points out how singing can be an encouragement to those around us. Have you ever thought about that? So let me put some of you on the spot. Some of y'all are holding back when you're singing. Listen, this is not an audition. This is not American Idol. We don't really care how how. Well, or how poorly you sing. In my opinion, none of you sing poorly. You have the voice God gave you. There should be some enthusiasm. Uh, The old word that used to be uh, used was, when we sing, we sing lustily. Now, that's not a bad word. That means with vigor, with strength, with gratitude, right? Right? God has saved us and He's brought us to Himself. And so these doctrines that we've been studying, if anything, they should elicit from God's people unabandoned worship. Amen? And we should pour our hearts out to God every time we gather. So we respond in worship. I have two more. I'm going I'm to try to move a little more quickly now. So hang on. Our response to the gospel is worship. That is this this vertical aspect. But secondly, it's seen in fellowship. And and fellowship is more the the horizontal, right? It's a horizontal aspect. Uh, I want to point out to you how important fellowship is. And we know that it extends beyond the times that we're gathered here corporately, Right? It's not as if, okay, when we're gathered here together, fellowship can take place, but only here, no other time. No, it can take place all the time, right? It can and it must, and I know that it does. And I know that probably many of you have been uh, a little bit frustrated and disappointed because of restrictions that we've uh, placed on ourselves because of this COVID-19. And I can assure you that slowly... Surely we're we're going to return to normal when we know for sure that everything is safe. And uh, I know that you want to get back to the routine of gathering in the morning and eating donuts and drinking coffee and just hanging around and talking with one another and finding out what's going on in our lives and then uh, sharing at the table and having a meal afterwards. We've been missing that, haven't we? That is important and that is fellowship to be sure, but that's not all that fellowship is. Uh, fellowship takes place any time we are together. I think it takes place, uh, there's a little bit of an overlap here. I think fellowship is actually taking place when we gather for corporate worship. Because we're encouraging one another, right? As we saw when we're, when we're singing. So, I want to point you to a particular passage In Hebrews 3.13, it says this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I want to point out the importance of fellowship with regard to, to how we fight sin. Now, I know that to a certain degree, some of this battle is personal for us, isn't it? We must be putting sin to death. And we can't put our inability to defeat sin on someone else. You know, I could, just, I could do this if, if I was getting enough fellowship. So we've got to fight this battle. But at the same time, I want you to recognize how important it is for us to fight these battles together. We're all fighting it, right? Right? We know the importance of scripture reading and prayer in this battle but I want you to see here that the writer points out how important it is to exhort one another so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now what does that look like? Well when you see someone struggling that doesn't mean go up to them I know what you're doing you're struggling with sin. Put your arms around him and say hey I'm here. I've been there. Or maybe I'm going through it now. Let's lock arms. Let's go through it together. Let's pray together. I, I'm praying for you. If you need a, an accountability person, I'm here. So we, we recognize the importance of fellowship in the church's battle with sin. That's a, a negative aspect, but I want you to also see that there is a, a positive aspect particularly good works. Uh, let me point this out to you from Hebrews ten twenty four, And let us, there's another, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, hold on. We reform folks know the danger of good works, don't we? We are not saved by works. I've heard some people so... Cautious about this, I wonder that if if they've blackened out places like this in their Bible with a marker, oh, we don't want to. We're not saved by works, and nobody is saying we are. Again, remember, we're not saying to get, but because of. That's a world of difference, right? He says uh, that we are to stir one another up to good works. This is not a a bad thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's a needed thing in the body of Christ. This this word here that he uses for stir up means to provoke. We think that's a bad word, don't we? It's not a bad word. Or uh, another usage of it is to sharpen. Think about that. We get dull, don't we? How do we stay sharp? Interacting with one another. Encouraging one another. Stirring up one another. Come on, we can do it. Recall a, a previously given verse that we've looked at for the, the third point that I want us to see regarding fellowship. It's in Hebrews 10.25. It says, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to just hone in for just a second on this word encouragement. Encouragement. Uh, I don't do this to boast about my Greek ability because it's very limited. Some of you may be better in handling the Greek than I am. But this particular Greek word for encourage is the Greek word parakaleo. I want you to listen to that word, parakaleo. It's a, it's a, a compound word made up of a prefix, para, or para, and we use lots of words with that like Parallel. Uh, para means to come alongside. And then the second part of that word, kaleo, means what it sounds like call, to call. And so encouragement literally means to call someone alongside, to have someone there with you. And that's what this word means to call alongside of. That's encouragement. Uh, I don't think that it necessarily means literally. Okay? Because you can be encouraged without somebody being right there beside you physically, right? I I think that there is a perfect English, kind of a, a, I guess, a, a hipster modern phrase that we have for this. You know what I'm thinking of? I've got your back. Hey, I'm here for you. You need me. You call me. I'm there. And this is what encouragement is. And so when we come together and we we fellowship together, this is what's happening. We're encouraging one another. You are an encouragement to me just when I see you because you're here physically. And I know that if you're not here physically with me, you're here with me spiritually. And we all have to know that we're here for one another, right? And encourage one another, Amen. Well, I want to conclude with one final aspect of the response to the gospel, living in light of the gospel. After talking about worship and and fellowship, I, fi- I want us to finally see here this morning the importance of responding in mission, the church's mission. We have talked about worship being the the vertical aspect of our response and then Fellowship being the horizontal aspect of it. But there's an aspect where we reach out beyond, and that is mission. We don't look simply to one another, but we look beyond one another. We look into the world. If one thing should come from our study of the doctrines of grace. It is that the Father will bring those He has chosen, those whom the Lord Jesus has purchased. The Spirit will most certainly call to Himself, will He not? But, how does He do that? Magic? (laughs) They don't just magically come, do they? You know the verse in Romans... How will they come without someone preaching? How will they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't mean somebody with a title or a seminary degree. It just simply means to call out, to exclaim, to proclaim. Anybody in this room can do that. And I know many of you do. And I want to encourage you to, to be about that. Now We know the charge, don't we? Calvinism destroys missions. Wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard it. Or maybe a dollar. That'd be better, a dollar. But we know that it's actually just the opposite, doesn't it? We know that once you understand God's sovereign work in salvation, that encourages us, that spurs us on to go. Because we know that the Lord has promised to work. Through the preaching of the gospel. How do we do this? How does the church accomplish this mission? Well, I want to point to you first in pointing out to you the example of living by faith. Now, I don't have a particular verse that I want to read, but I just want you to think with me about Hebrews chapter 11. You all know that chapter, don't you? Most famous chapter in this book. But, but how does that chapter, how is it structured? How does it go? By faith Abraham. By faith Moses. By faith uh, David. And so on and so on and so on and so forth. And, and the writer then makes the point at the end of that chapter now look, I'm not talking about just certain ones. I'm talking about many. I can't name them all. And then he says in chapter 12, we're surrounded by this cloud of what? Witnesses. And so when you and I live by faith in light of the gospel, we're a part of that cloud of witnesses. We're witnessing to the grace of God. And yes, people need to hear, they need to be told, but so many times that conversation can begin when someone sees a a, a difference in you, a transformation that is, you're not like everybody else, are you? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You should be strange. We are strangers in this world. And if you're not, maybe maybe we need to, to sharpen up a little bit with what we think is our witness, right? We're not called to blend in. We can't blend in. We're different from the world. God has saved us from this world. So a life of faith. I also want to point out to you the importance of the mission with regard to giving. Giving. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, I just want to say and commend you uh, in this regard. Your faithfulness as of late has just been uh, overwhelming to us, and we're so thankful. But as you know, uh, a good bit of what we give, we, we don't just hold on to, right? We're investing. We're, we're giving this to, to others who are taking it, using it to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so I want to continue to encourage you. Don't let up. Please continue to be faithful in your giving. These are sacrifices that are pleasing to have here, according to the writer. And and so this must characterize us, right? It must. We we must be sharing. And, and, And finally, a couple of verses down in Hebrews 13, 18, there's one more aspect to completing the mission. And I think it's probably the most important aspect. Whether we're talking about us and how we are living by faith in light of the gospel or supporting those who have gone to, to faraway places, and that is the aspect of prayer. Hebrews thirteen eighteen says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now, we don't know who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, but most likely he was an apostle, which means that he was involved in mission work probably going here and there. And so what does he say? Pray for us. I think this is the most important aspect of mission. This is the fuel for mission. Yes, it takes dollars. And we're thankful to be able to partner with faithful brothers and sisters in their mission endeavors. But I can tell you All of them. I can tell you from my perspective as a pastor, more than money, I need prayer. Prayer is the fuel. So let's join together and earnestly continue in praying that the Lord would see fit to work through His church to accomplish this mission that He is using through us in spite of us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful to be encouraged and to be challenged. We're thankful that you alone can speak into our hearts. And so we pray that you will. And Father, everyone who is here in attendance today, who has been listening, Lord, you know what is needed. You alone are the one who knows. And so whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would speak now. We pray that you would strengthen your church. We pray that you would use us. We ask, Lord, that in everything you be honored and glorified. Through Christ our Lord we ask. Amen.